0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moya's Jiwa. I'm talking today to Michael Bungay Stanier, founder of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organizations transform from advice-driven to curiosity-led. Michael has written a number of books. His last, The Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Coaching Habit, has sold over half a million copies and has been praised as one of the business books that makes people laugh. His new book, The Advice Trap, will be published in February this year. Balancing out these moments of success, he was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident, was sued by one of his law school lecturers for defamation, and his first published piece of writing was a Harlequin romance short story called The Mail Delivery. Michael Bunke Stanier, you're very, very welcome to the show. Uh, we're honoured to have you. And I wanted to start with a question that may be on many healthcare professionals' minds. Who are you? Who is Michael <laughs> gay Stanier?
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. It's great to have this conversation. So, um, look, I know you're in Melbourne. Perfect. I was born in Melbourne, but I now live in Canada because I'll tell you why. So I grew up in Australia, grew up in Can- Canberra, Went to high school in Canberra. Went to university in Canberra. Went to the ANU. Uh, did arts law, so I did an English literature degree and a law degree. Um, the English, the link, the English literature degree went really well. I loved it and I was good at it. Law, not so much. It was a struggle the whole way through. I finished law school, literally being sued by one of my law school lecturers for defamation. So it wasn't going well, but I was saved from becoming a lawyer. And I like to think that the legal system was saved from me being a lawyer within that system. Launched myself, got a job in the world of innovation and creativity, which is fabulous, but in the end not fulfilling because I found myself inventing, you know, the next range of soup for hind suits soup and, soups, and Uh, you know new range of for a fish pie producer in in the britain i'm like i love that i love the experience of creating but you know do i really want to go to my grave with michael contributed in a small way to pizza hut stuffed crust pizza not so much so that got me into the world of organizations and trying to figure out why how organizations change and how they don't change and within that kind of individuals and their agency within those organizations and about uh, seventeen years ago, I, by this stage I'd left London and moved to Boston, and then left Boston and moved to Toronto, and started my company called Box of Crayons. And when I started my company, I was it was a classic solopreneur, um, but over the years it has focused, and now it talks about um, the focus is to help organisation move from being an advice driven organization to a curiosity-led organization. And within that is teaching people, let's call them coaching skills, or the way I I prefer to talk about it is being more coach-like, which in the end boils down to, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And part of what's fueled the success of those businesses, some books that I've written, the one that you know, the way that we kind of got connected is a book called The Coaching Habit, came out about four years ago, has had an amazing success. <laughs> if I say so myself, it's like almost three quarters of a million copies of the of the book sold now, which is particularly sweet because I spent three years trying to get it published and then self-published it because I couldn't find a publisher to take it on. So I'm like, who's laughing now, publishers? And uh, I have a new book on the cusp of showing up in the world about a month away, February the 29th, 2020, and it's called The Advice Trap. And it goes a little deeper into this world of going, how do you stay curious? Because most people understand the power of curiosity, but it's actually pretty difficult to shift your behavior to be curious. I mean, and I'll say this is the kind of the wrap-up. You know, a study came out last year, 2019, that said on average, GPs – Interrupt their patients after about 11 seconds. And, you know, the good news is, I guess, that this isn't really a doctor issue, it's a human issue. But the bad news also is the medical profession is one where lots of people think they always know the answer and they're like, their job is to always have the answer. And obviously, there's a place for giving answer and giving advice and giving guidance and solutions. But when it is your default response every time, then it diminishes in its impact.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic segue to my first question, which is that 80% of the diagnosis is made by the history. And in my experience, both as a teacher and as a clinician, of all the skills that we have as doctors, it's the least well-mastered. And it's exactly for the reason that you've described. In fact, that that piece of research is, is quite old now that people interrupt within oh, very few seconds of yeah. opening the conversation. Often it's because we want to move on because, you know, it's almost time.
1: The pressure of triage, there's a, there's a room full of people needing my time. Yeah. Um, I want to move, I, you know, you're caught between this desire to be present, be supportive, be curious, and the pressure of the, the, the context that you're in. I understand that for sure.
0: Yeah, you know, someone says I've got a, I've got this uh, scratchy throat and I've got a bit of a headache, and immediately you jump in, and go it's a virus, take some paracetamol, mm-hmm. almost as if to say, and what else? And often what right. it is is that it's not that was never the problem that was bothering them the most, and that was not the problem that brought them there. That was the the, and I think your work emphasizes that. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that when you're talking about having this conversation. You're saying take your time. And I don't know, your first question is, what's on your mind? And the second question, yeah. and what else? I love that. Maybe you could say, yeah. a little bit. where did that come from? How did you come to that?
1: I signed up and, and became part of the youth crisis telephone counselling service at ANU. So, you know, we were giving a basic training in Rogerian counselling, which just evidentially says look, there's more going on than what they present with. (laughs) So stay curious and see if you can get a little deeper into the conversation. And that really was the eye-opener for me. I'd always been a good listener, but I wasn't always sure what I was doing. This really helped me go, look, this moves a conversation forward without me being overly directive about how that works. By the time I got to writing the book, I'd spent close to 10 years trying out and teaching different types of approaches to coaching. And I was desperate to make it feel like a practical everyday tool for people who are busy and overwhelmed. Because one of the reasons the whole idea of coaching in general fails in organizational situations is people go, I don't have time for that stuff. This is a, some HR initiative, which is all about spending time with people. And that's all well and good. But I am so busy, and I'm so driven. And I'm, I'm backed up on all sorts of ways. It's got to be fast. It's got to be effective. It's got to... It's got to help my life get better as the person asking the questions, not just as the person answering the questions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it came from experimentation and kind of data, which is like these are the questions that seem to have the most impact. And in the Coaching Habit book, as you know, there there are only seven questions. And it says, look, these questions, there's, there's thousands of great questions out in the world. But if you add these seven questions to your repertoire, You're more likely to be more effective, more curious, and actually get to the real challenge faster than if you use other questions or if you try and figure it out. If you rush in and try and provide the answer or the solution too quickly, what you've done is you rapidly solved the wrong problem with possibly the wrong answer. (laughs) It's like a a Pyrrhic victory.
0: Yes. And I think in medicine, that is a particularly important consideration. The other consideration is that patients these days particularly want more of a partnership. I mean, gone are the days when mm-hmm. somebody came in to the doctor and said, "You know, just give me the pills." We now get right. asked all kinds of questions, like, "You know, the, the, there's the pills as well, but what else is there? And what else? And what else?" Mm-hmm. And wh- I think one of the, your questions towards the end of that set of seven is, "If not this, if you say yes to this, you're saying no to that. Is that okay?"
1: Right. I love that. You, the you know, in the book we call this the strategic question. Yeah. And because strategy in that broader sense is often figuring out what you're willing to commit to mm. and then understanding the opportunity cost, what you must say no to to make the yes feel real. And human beings in general are just hard, It's just not that great at no. <laughs> And, you know, if you come in and you spend time with Dr. Google, and you're like, I think I know what the things are, and I've got five different remedies that I've looked up, and I'd like them all, please. And part of your job, I would guess, as a medical profession, is professional is to go, you don't get to have them all, because A, they probably contraindicate or something, each other, and B, one of them's made up by a lunatic down the road, so you, don't even, you definitely don't want to do that. But I can imagine that as a medical professional, part of what you might be thinking, and you, and tell me if this is right, but I can imagine that part of it is success is an empowered patient, meaning your patient understands the choices that are being made. They understand what she has said yes to and what she said no to. She's taken responsibility for her own health and her own treatment because I know it's just enough to know that. So often, you know, the doctor goes, hey, this is what this is what I'm prescribing. This is what you need to do. And people don't finish the regime, whether that's of drugs or whether it's other processes to get them to go, well, they don't, they don't complete it. And in part, that's because you don't have somebody who's feeling that degree of engagement and autonomy. Part of the value of being curious is not just that you get to a diagnosis that might be more accurate and more useful. But you are creating a relationship where the person who's answering the questions feels more engaged and more empowered and more willing to step up and take on their share of the responsibility of, in, in this context, getting well.
0: You're speaking to the very heart of medicine now, and you speak to the heart of medicine as we in the challenges that we currently face. So if you think about it, in fact, just go out in the street and have a look, 60 to 80% of us are now either overweight or obese. Uh, we eat far too much, we drink far too much, and we're far too sedentary. And the consequence of that is that we face as big a crisis in healthcare as climate change is providing us to our environment. We have a tinderbox right. of problems there. And it's a matter of time yeah. before that begins to come home to us with the cancer diagnosis, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So you're right. We And, and the only people who can make those choices in, in our world, are uh, the patient themselves. Because these yeah. are lifestyle choices. These are not choices about medication anymore. These are choices that we make in terms of what we eat and drink, et cetera, et cetera. So you're right, yeah. engaging somebody so that they feel empowered. they making the choice to do some of the hard things that we have to do Yeah. to get better.
1: Well, Moise, let me ask you this, because part of what I wrestle with and and this is just difficult is this conversation about behavior change. You know, I remember reading an article years ago, so you'll know this, a, the research better than me and probably the updated version of it. But effectively, as I remember it, it was people with a critical heart issue go in, have an operation, they're saved. They've had some bypass of some sort. But effectively they said, "Look, unless you change your lifestyle, you will be dead within 12 months because this operation is a short-term fix. It's not a long-term fix. And one in eight was able to actually change their lifestyle. Yeah. The work you do and knowing that you're a champion for coaching and curiosity, but I'm just, I just would be so interested to know, you know, how do you think about and go about trying to affect behavior change with the people you work with and the people that you teach?
0: It's extraordinarily difficult and it takes a lot of respect for the people that come to see you to do it right. So a lot Mm. of the time, what you're not aware of, and this is where your work is so important to us, a lot of the time, what you're not aware of are the other things that are going on in the person's life. The other things that are likely to impact on those choices that they're making. So when it's just like an iceberg, above the iceberg, you see the person who's overweight or right. who's got the alcohol problem or whatever it happens to be. Below, the thing you don't see is the debt and the gambling and the addictions and the noisy neighbors yeah. and the bully boy boss and whatever other horrible things happen in people's lives. And when you're not yeah. aware of what's below, you can't really effectively change what's above. But what you're suggesting is that you ask those questions. What's on your mind and what else? Yeah. And often, what else comes yeah. out is, "I hate my job." That's a different conversation.
1: Right. It's a very different conversation. I mean, you know, I I, I took as an insight from from basically medical literature I mean, in the world of psychology to say you can almost be sure that the presenting challenge is never the real challenge. Yeah. It's you know, it's people's foot and. I don't know if this is true. I'm you know I'm you know I'm not a doctor. I've never even played one on TV, so I don't know. I'm guessing, and you're 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 course correct. But um you know when you go to a patient, tell me what's going on. The flaw in that piece is that they can't articulate all that's going on. They haven't noticed all that's going on. They're not going to talk about that weird rash and that you know that place which they're embarrassed about. They don't want to share that. Um, they've already made up their mind as to what this is because they did some Googling. So now they're going to tell you the symptoms that point to that diagnosis that they've already made up in their own mind. There's so much that can go wrong. Human beings across the board are nuts. (laughs) They're just irrational. They're mad. They're wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. And part of what curiosity does is it allows you to go look just a little bit of an investment in curiosity a little bit longer can give you a richer context and a richer picture, which will make you smarter, faster as the medical professional trying to solve this problem.
0: Somebody comes in and they've got a nasty cold and you say to them, well, what's the challenge in this for you? And you're thinking all kinds of, well, you know, it's the runny nose, it's the headache and they go, well, actually I've got to go to my kid's school concert and I'm just going to disturb everyone coughing. (laughs) You think I never thought of that.
1: Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because you're like, let me help your life be better yeah. and go and until you really know what they're anxious about or worried about, you know, what's the real challenge here for you? Yeah. Like you got this cough, what's the real challenge here? She's like, you know what? I've got to I've got to show up to work because I, I've I've been I've used up my sick days already, so I've got to make this work. I've I've got to go to my kids kids concert and I don't want to hack my way through the concert and make my kid cry, make all the people sitting next to me annoyed as anything. So you're like, okay, there are different solutions to those two challenges, even though the underlying cause may be the same.
0: It makes sense then that somebody is demanding antibiotics. You can see that it's not the demand for the antibiotics for viral illness, which is not indicated. That's the problem. The problem is this person needs to do achieve something, which is very important to them. Because
1: right. that's actually... Part of what I've noticed is when people come in to tell you the problem, half the time what they're trying to what they're giving you is the solution they've already thought of to the problem that they haven't articulated. So it's it is hard, but you know one of the things that and I, and I so appreciate how you champion this work, but it is amazing how fast you can get to quite a deep understanding of what's going on if you have the discipline to ask a question then shut up and listen to the answer. You know, when we do this training in organisations, we'll give people a script, and we'll say to them, "Okay, you, I'm going to give you three minutes to have this conversation." There's been a bit of a setup, but three minutes to have this conversation. People are paired up, and I'll say, "Okay, the you know the person with the longest hair, you get to ask the questions first. The person with shorter hair, you're you're answering a, a real conversation about a real challenge that you're up against." And the script that I give people is this: "What's the real challenge here for you?" And what else? And what else? So what's the real challenge here for you? But here's here's the kind of the evil genius about how we set this up. To the person who's asking the questions, we say, by the way, that's your entire script for the three minutes. You're allowed to add small, meaningless words of encouragement like, mm-hmm, yep, yeah, sure. Good. Yeah. Okay. Great. Love it. Good. Totally. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Excellent. You know, just kind of indicators of i'm engaged and i'm listening and i care about what you're saying but that's it you're not allowed to say anything else other than those two questions repeated twice so four questions in total and three things appear from that from that exercise and this is three minutes coaching first of all the first challenge is never the real challenge it has shifted by the time they answer the second question why that matters is that if the person had been trying to solve that first challenge, they'd have been offering up slightly crappy advice to solve the wrong problem. The second thing is people are amazed at how deep the conversation can go in just three minutes. And in part, it's because of the magic of adding for you onto the end of the question. You're not just saying, what's the challenge? You're not just saying, what's the real challenge? You're saying, what's the real challenge here for you? And people start talking about what it means to them rather than what their symptoms are. The third thing that becomes apparent is how it is almost killing people not to give advice for three minutes. I mean, we talk about in the book and in the new book in particular, the advice monster. You know, we all we all know our advice monster. Somebody starts talking and your advice monster looms up out of the dark. I'm going to be so smart. And part of, if you had to summarize you know, kind of the core theme and across both of these books is like tame your advice monster.
0: Yeah, very, very good advice for medics because our advice monster is alive and well and kicking and (laughs) it's what seems to get us through the day, but possibly it's getting us through the day in a way that isn't helping. Did you know that in Australia, we spend $2 billion per year fixing the impact of our advice monster? I mean, fixing it.
1: I did you know, not know
0: that. Drugs, wow. that the drug side effects and surgical side effects and whatever else. And I'm not saying it's just advice, but it's there's a lot of that in it. Inappropriate yeah. things. We spend $20 billion over-servicing people. Over-servicing people who don't need the drugs or the prescriptions yeah. or the uh, investigations, the x-rays, the MRIs, whatever else.
1: Yeah. To the people listening in who are going, well, like, Yeah. I can. I'm starting to see my advice monster. The first thing I would acknowledge is you spend a lifetime being rewarded for having an answer. You know, you 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 get an A in school, you're great because you had the answer. You get to university, you get a whatever A plus or whatever the, the scoring system is, and you're like just because I had the answer. You go to medical school, whether that's to be a, a doctor or a surgeon or a nurse, and you just spend, as, from what I can tell. You just spend your years trying to absorb knowledge so you have that content. So it's like I have trained you to be a finely tuned advice dispensing machine. So you are unlearning a fundamental piece of your identity in terms of taking this on. And that's part of what the the new book, The Advice Trap, is about. It's it's an acknowledgement that this isn't just a simple process of going, oh, yeah, you're right. I hadn't really thought of that before. I'll just stop giving so much advice. I'll just stay curious a bit longer. Some people are able to do that. Some people make this switch really quickly. Whereas maybe you are one of those people who went, oh, I get it. And I buy into it. But for most people, it's, um, you know, in this new book, I talk about this difference between easy change and hard change. And the metaphor is like easy change is like when you download an app, you're basically adding something to the current operating system it can be really helpful. And people do this all the time, you know, as uh, you know, let's say a sales rep from a, um, a pharmaceutical company comes in and goes, let me teach you about this new drug for this new thing. You're like, okay, I'm downloading that content. I've got that knowledge done. Hard change is when the, the downloading of the app doesn't work. You need to download a new operating system to become a, a, a kind of new, almost like a future you, a new version of yourself. And that, Takes more work. It takes a deeper dive into who you are and what drives you, a deeper dive into kind of current and often hidden commitments as to how you want to show up in the world. And you've got to kind of do a little bit of dismantling before you get to rebuild yourself as this more effective version of how to show up in the world.
0: It sounds to me that what you're really telling us is it may be very difficult for established practitioners to absorb this, although it's not impossible. So speaking for myself, you know, old dog, new tricks, and all that. But really, yeah. we need to be getting this kind of teaching out in medical schools where we start teaching consultation skills. And the one skill that we don't teach is silence, probably oh, yeah. the most important skill of all.
1: Yeah. I mean, silence is difficult. You know how it is. People listening will know this. You ask a question, and there's not an immediate answer. Mm. And you wait and it just feel, and you look at your watch and, you know, three quarters of a second has elapsed and you're like, I can't take it anymore. And you're like, I've got to fill the void. And there is a remarkable impact of being able to ask a question and then to be, this is the way to think about it. Your only job is to be less uncomfortable with the silence than the other person because they too are uncomfortable with silence. And, you know, you and I have talked about the and what else question a few times because we, we're both fans of it. What and what else does, and I've never thought about it like this before, so it's the first time I'm saying it out loud. I think what and what else does is it creates, it incre- it, it stretches the silence because, you know, you use and what else as a follow-up question. You know, So what's the real challenge here for you? You hold the silence and they fill the silence. And then you go... And what else? And now you're just extending the silence, the space in which they have to answer that question. And it starts becoming a juicy conversation really fast.
0: Tell us about your new book, because I'm very keen for us not to go away without talking about that. Tell, tell, when is sure. it out and where can we get a hold of it?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. So it's called The Advice Trap. It really is a companion book. You know, it's, it, it's a, a sister book to the coaching habit. Like I was saying before, you know the coaching habits is this amazing success, and part of it is it, the feedback I get is a degree of practical elegance to it. It's like, here it is. Here are seven questions. Take these seven questions on, here's some suggestions on how to ask a question well, and with that you can move mountains. And I do think, and I know for lots of people, this has been a game changer for them. This isn't just about who your team is, this is, be more coach-like with your spouse and with your kids and with your patients and with the staff and all, all of that. And for some people, it's, it's difficult. So this book goes, right, let's take on hard change. What does it mean to say, I want to be more curious and I find it difficult? And the book does a kind of deeper dive and shares some processes around here's how you start shifting your behavior. Here's a process for redefining your behavior and helping you change that. And it also has some other things in it. You know, you like the what's the real challenge here for you question, the focus question, as we call it in the coaching habit. Well, in the new book, we go, oh, there's more to it than just the question. And we share the six fires, the six different patterns of behavior and patterns of conversation that you fall into that stop you getting clear on what the real challenge is, you know. Sometimes it's, um, big, it's called big skying it, which is like people stay too big picture and too abstract and too generalized. Sometimes it's popcorning. You know, people go, oh, I'm glad you asked what's on my mind. Here are 38 things that I can think of, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and as a physician or a nurse, you get anxious and you go, oh, okay, there's so much going on. But I recognize, the, I recognize that the seventh one. So let's start there because I can add value immediately. So, it goes into some of those symptoms around here's how you can get distracted from trying to find what the real focus is. Yeah. And one of the there's a deeper dive into understanding what your advice monster is. So, we introduced this concept in the Coaching Habit book, and people love it. You know, I get, all, I get emails all the time, and people go, Oh, I've, my, I've got an advice monster. I'm owning up to it. And I love that. In this book, we go, Look, there are actually the advice monster has three personas there's tell it, save it and control it and each of them have a kind of drive around this is why they keep you safe this is what it means to have this advice monster and one of the things that i'm excited about uh, when the book launches on february 29th we'll launch a questionnaire so that people can actually go and test and find out what their advice monster is so that's going to be at myadvicemonster.com so if you're listening and you're like "Ooh, tell it save it, control and I wonder which one of those is strongest in me right now. Well, there's a, there's a, you know, it's like 20, 21 questions. It won't take you long to do the questionnaire. It's not 100% backed by science, but it'll give you an interesting outcome in terms of what your what your advice monster might be.
0: That's fantastic. And I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Um, the reason I, I was so keen on this book, uh, the first book, uh, is because you asked a very good question at the start. You said, can you think of a time when you have been coached? What was that like? And you right. immediately went and I immediately went back and thought, yeah, and it was a disaster. <laughs> and you say, well, exactly. <laughs> and yet yeah, you know. And can you think of a time when you've been coaching? Of course, you're yeah. coaching all the time. And you're thinking, yeah, and I'm just, I'm just continuing, perpetuating this disastrous behavior. And it's true in, in practice as well, particularly true in medical practice, that we do it all the time. You know, we go in expecting yeah. an answer from a specialist for, about a question we've asked uh, about a patient. And then we expect the same kind of behavior from ourselves when, we, when we're when uh, we dealing with an individual patient. Immediately the answer. And you're right. We, we really need to look again at all that habit in particular. They say that 80% of the diagnosis is made by the history.
1: Well, I appreciate your work in championing this profound potential shift in terms of um, how medical professionals show up and potentially engage with the people with, with, you know, who they are there in a place to, this is like medical professionals are servant leaders. You know, they're absolutely leaders and they're in that position to go, how do I serve this person? You know, uh, Robert Greenleaf put out a book years ago in the eighties or seventies called servant leadership. And he said, it's like, the test is, is the person better off after you've been with them? And I think there's a really powerful way of framing what physicians and nurses and all medical professionals do. It's a version of servant leadership. It's profound, important work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there's any way that this conversation around the power of curiosity and the power of questions allow that work to be done even better, not just for the patient's sake, but for the, the professional's sake and for the medical system's sake, well, then that's a great conversation.
0: It is. Michael, it's been a joy speaking with you. Thank you so much
1: for Thank taking you. the time. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. This is wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.